Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm discussing the poisons of Agatha Christie with the chemist, author and Agatha Christie fanatic, Catherine Harcup, and her book, A is for Arsenic. Catherine Harcup is a chemist and author. She completed a PhD, then a postdoc at the University of York, before realising that talking, writing and demonstrating science appealed far more than spending hours slaving over a hot fume hood. She went on to run outreach in engineering, computing, physics and maths at the University of Surrey and is now a freelance science communicator, delivering talks and workshops on the quirky side of science. And Catherine is the author of A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie, which we're going to be talking about today. So Catherine, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Let's talk about Agatha Christie first of all before we Mm -hmm. get onto the poison. So why do you like her? What was the appeal of Agatha Christie to you? Oh, I've liked her since I was a kid. I remember reading Agatha Christie's when I was a teenager and I always enjoyed them. They're always um, Agatha Christie books. They're not the greatest works of fiction. I think even Agatha Christie would admit that. But when you sit down with an Agatha Christie book, you know that you're going to be entertained Mm -hmm. for the duration of the story. So it was always a good sort of comforting read, even though people dying all over the place it was a nice sort of reassuring read so I've always loved her I love the TV series I've liked the films so it's always kind of been a presence throughout my life I would say and what is it about poisons with Agatha Christie then because obviously the people get shot and stabbed and Mm. bumped off in lots of different ways in her books But she's uniquely qualified to write about poisons isn't she? Absolutely she used more poisons more often and more accurately than any other crime writer that I know of. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there'll be someone out there who beat this, but as far as I'm aware, she's um, the most prolific poisoner in crime writing, and it's uh, because it's what she knew about. So she trained as a dispenser during the First World War. She volunteered initially as a nurse, and it was suggested that she might like to work in the dispensary within the hospital. And that's what she did. She trained up, she studied theoretical, practical chemistry, as well as going to a little pharmacist in her hometown and learning the practicalities of making pills and creams and tonics, because this was a time when 
nothing was pre-packaged. You didn't get it from an industrial-scale sort of manufacturer. You made it yourself mm -hmm. to a specific order. So there was a lot of skill involved, and quite understandably, you had to pass certain qualifications. So she had an enormous wealth of knowledge when she started writing. And it was when she was working in this dispensary that she got challenged by her sister to dare to write a crime novel. And initially her sister thought, no, this would be far too difficult for her. It's actually really difficult to construct a, a well-plotted crime novel. But Agatha rose to the challenge, and what else would you expect? Surrounded by all of these mm -hmm. pills and potions, what else was she going to choose? So that kind of set her on her path to using all of these poisons in her novels. Christine wrote about a number of... She had a, like People will think of Poirot or Miss Marple, but she had a number of protagonists across the course of her career but you all picture that country house and people being Absolutely. gradually murdered in a in a quite sedate and nice English village setting. And in some ways, I think we think of poisons like that as well. Like They seem very quintessentially Agatha Christie, quintessentially English murders. And what's interesting, she's obviously writing about that lovely English garden setting in which people are killed. Yes. And that's obviously not very nice. <laughs> no. And poisons work for that because they're like, they're really awful. They are absolutely <laughs> appalling um, in the, their method. And you think that gunshots and stabbings are <laughs> really graphic and nasty. The details of poisoning are very, very unpleasant. I think TV does a, a massive disservice <laughs> to the, you know, someone eats a, a forkful of food, they choke a bit and they keel on the floor dead. That's not how poisons work. It <laughs> is far, far more unpleasant and much more prolonged. And I can understand why TV wouldn't want to portray the realities of this because it's really horrific so it is actually an incredible contrast to this cosy domestic setting that Agatha Christie set up to have this really horrific nastiness going on maybe that's the appealing you know it's, it's something so awful but in a reassuring setting and what do you think then is the appeal of to on to you first of all of poisons I mean obviously you're a chemist so there's, there's a sort of <laughs> yes. there's there's a reason for that but again, it seems like... And then what I'm trying to sort of get to here is what I find particularly fascinating about poisons is that poisoners are really into poison. So we'll talk about some of them as we go along and we'll get to probably the most, the most famous British one, Graham Young, later on in the programme. But, like, the poisoners seem to be obsessed with the tools of their trade in a way that I don't think other murderers are. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can imagine sort of gun nuts, you know. Yeah, gun nuts, no um, doubt, obsess over guns. Yeah, that's yeah, true. That's the sinister thing, I think, about poisoning. You can't lash out in the heat of an argument. Yeah. You can't just, you know, grab something that's to hand and bash someone over the head. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have to think about it, and you have to know what you're doing. And because it takes a long time, there is an appalling moral vacuum where you have to see it through to the end and mm. that's why I think the poisoners are so fascinating because they must have that little quirk in their head that means they can think about it, take their time over it plan how it's going to be administered see it through to the end and at no point in that do they think hang on a minute maybe this isn't such a good idea mm -hmm. and you know, calm down and rationalise it so poisoners have always been in a kind of special class of murderer and even if you go back to sort of Henry VIII's time, there was a special class of punishment for poisoners above and beyond your normal kind of hanging, beheading, whatever it might be. They were boiled in oil. I mean, it's just because what they did was so despicable. So there is this 
Yeah, there is added level of fascination with these people, I think. That's not a nice way to go, is it? <laughs> I, I don't think there is a good way to go, but that's got to be up there. What you do in this book, you look at 14 different poisons mm. that Christy uses in her novels and then, and then ask the same questions of those poisons. And well, we're going to go through some of the poisons over the course of this interview and, and do a similar thing. But before we do that, are there any like really obvious ones, famous ones that she never used? I think probably the most famous one that she mentioned but she never actually used to kill anyone was Karari, mm-hmm. which it does get name-checked in yeah. a, a couple of the books. But Karari, you'd associate more with Sherlock Holmes, maybe. It's a slightly different era. And I think Karari, for Christie, was almost too easy. It was this weird, exotic poison that has all sorts of fantastic properties, but it was almost cheating. She wanted something more interesting, mm-hmm. you know, even though she goes down the classic route of arsenic and cyanide, which are, you know, if you ask anyone to name their top three poisons, they're going to name arsenic, cyanide and, and something else. So they were obvious, but she didn't actually use things like arsenic to kill people very often. It gets lots of mentions and stuff. Mm. So she's clearly displaying her knowledge. But Karari, for me, would be the top one that she didn't use. And it's a shame because it is a fascinating Mm -hmm. poison in its own right and has modern medical uses and all sorts of applications that are a fantastic history behind it. But she kind of shunned all of that. So A is for arsenic, as Mm -hmm. is the title of the book. So let's let's talk about arsenic. What is it? Where does it come from? Oh, arsenic is all around Mm -hmm. us. It's in the soil. It's a very predominant element within the Earth's crust. So it is quite commonly dug up with ores, metal ores, for various applications when you're digging up iron or copper or whatever. Those ores will be contaminated with arsenic. So some parts of the world are particularly rich in arsenic and the crops grown there should be treated with caution. Um, I'm told there are certain parts of Cornwall where you just don't eat the fruit on the trees. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently it's gorgeous fruit. (laughs) It looks really appetising. And there are various other parts of the world where it presents genuine problems. So this element, it's normally found as arsenate or arsenite, so a compound of arsenic with oxygen. And it's not terribly soluble in water, but it's soluble enough to present a problem. Mm -hmm. So it can seep into uh, watercourses and, and things like that. So there are many, many sources of arsenic in our environment and we are exposed to it daily through our food, etc., etc. However, our body can process a certain amount of it. It's when you get more... If you're eating more than you can excrete, mm-hmm. then you have a problem because it starts to accumulate in your body and cause health effects. So in terms of availability, arsenic is one of those that's right up there in terms of access just from the environment around you. And in Agatha Christie's time, it was used... In an absolutely appalling number of different products that you could just buy over the counter. Mm-hmm. And it seems ridiculous by today's standards, but it was absolutely commonplace around you know 1920s. It was even more common in the Victorian era. That's the sort of golden age of arsenic use. And that would that would include medical reasons. Absolutely. In the years before germ theory and a deeper understanding of what caused diseases, you wanted to treat someone, so you gave them something and if it produced an effect on the body, for example, vomiting, diarrhea, sweating, uh, whatever it might be, that was considered a good thing. And arsenic will definitely do that. It will cause quite violent vomiting and diarrhea. And so it was seen as a kind of purgative or it was somehow getting rid of the nastiness within them. So it had a huge variety of uses in medicine for practically every ailment. What would a poisoner use? How would you... 
or like what sort of version of it would you use as the poison so the poison if you so if you're given the option would you like to eat arsenic the element or <laughs> uh, what's called uh, arsenic trioxide or white arsenic which is the main compound that was extracted from these ores I would choose arsenic the element because actually that's the least toxic variety because it's not readily absorbed into the body. Arsenic trioxide, on the other hand, is readily absorbed. And when people talk about arsenic poisoning, they're talking about arsenic trioxide or white arsenic. It was just shorthanded to arsenic. And that's what people were buying in their stores and adding to their spouse's soup or whatever it was. I'm Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So let's talk about how it how it works on the body, basically how it kills us. And this is something you do throughout this book with all of the poisons, and I think it's it's something that isn't explored often enough. So we see people being poisoned on television and in films, and they'll take something, they'll eat it, they'll keel over. As you've said earlier, often too quickly, but mm. regardless of that, it just looks like you know this thing didn't taste very nice and they died. We're going to talk as we go through what these compounds actually do to the body, what it is that that kills it. So let's start with arsenic. So arsenic um, is a bit of an exception in terms of the taste variety. So a lot of um, very toxic compounds often have a bitter taste Mm -hmm. associated with them. However, arsenic is tasteless, so it could easily be added to food without alerting the victim. When you eat it, uh, you've got about 15 minutes. Uh, Initially, it's an irritant, so it's going to irritate the throat and the stomach as it goes down, which is the first cause of vomiting. Your body's natural reaction to getting rid of something unpleasant or toxic is to throw it up and get rid of it. If you absorb enough arsenic into your body, then it's the interaction of that arsenic... There's two ways, depending on the form of arsenic that you've got. One way, arsenite looks an awful lot like phosphate, and your body absolutely needs phosphate to function normally. So anything that looks like phosphate, it grabs hold of, and it grabs hold of arsenite, and it tries to use it in the same way, except that arsenite's like the lazier cousin of phosphate, and it doesn't do those jobs very well, or it stops completely. However, the main way, the arsenic trioxide method basically arsenic has a very strong affinity for sulfur and your body is full of sulfur it holds your enzymes together in very specific shapes which enable those enzymes to function and if arsenic sticks to that sulfur it can disrupt the shape of Mm -hmm. the enzyme and that enzyme stops working so the symptoms that you get depend entirely on which enzymes get disrupted and it's going to be enzymes that are used a lot for example ones that are used in nerves so you'll have horrific stomach cramps all sorts of other effects it starts to affect your skin if you have long-term exposure because you have lots of sulfur in your skin and you have lots of sulfur in your hair so initially you'll have beautiful glossy hair after a while the effects become more nasty Mm -hmm. shall we say but at least because your hair has so much sulfur in it it gives you a record of your arsenic exposure Mm because it gets locked into your hair so from a basic point of view it's disruption of fundamental processes within your body and when those stop obviously the body stops being able to function resulting in a very horrible death and how long would that take if we weren't taking any form of antidote any sort of course to try and stop this how long would it take for that to happen if you have a massive dose of arsenic well over the sort of lethal dose then the best you can really hope for is about 12 hours which is a horrifically long time. Uh, More often is three or four days, Mm -hmm. 
But if you've got a rather stupid poisoner who perhaps doesn't use enough and has to repeatedly dose their victims, a lot of Victorian poisoners were very attentive nurses to the person they were trying to get rid of, and it, it can go on for weeks and it will be agonising and very distressing. It's interesting to say again, when you look at poisoners, poisoners often historically have been women, because they were the people that were closer. No. No? Is that not true? Is that a myth? It is a myth. Um, Poison is traditionally seen as a woman's weapon, and it is true that female murderers will use poison more often than male murderers, but there are far more men that kill than women and so actually the number of poisoners there's a greater number of male poisoners than there are female poisoners it's just that because of the rarity so women rarely kill when they are caught there is a lot of press attention and because poisoning is rare again you get increased press attention so you've got this double rarity and so the poisoners you've heard of are women Is there an antidote? There is for arsenic poisoning. It's called a chelating agent, and it's a chemical that basically grabs hold of the metal very, very tightly, and it enables it to be excreted Mm -hmm. safely. And these particular chelators for arsenic were developed during the Second World War as an antidote to anti-lewisite treatment, basically, Mm -hmm. because a lot of the nerve gases that had been developed were arsenic-based. And so as a result of that... We now have antidotes, even though I don't believe they were actually deployed during the Second World War. I could be wrong on that. Give us an example of a, of a real-life case where arsenic was used. One that fascinates me is the case of Florence Maybrick. So this was an American lady who married a British man who was much older than her. This was back in 1890-something. And her husband cheated on her and... Um, It was not a happy marriage, I don't believe, and she also had an affair. He got away with his affairs, she got a black eye. And soon after these kind of events, her husband became very sick with vomiting, diarrhoea, all the sort of things you associate with arsenic poisoning or gastroenteritis, very, very similar. And he got progressively worse and worse and worse, and he eventually died. And they did the autopsy, they discovered arsenic in his body, but not that much. And it became clear through their investigation that Mr Maybrick had been an arsenic eater. Mm -hmm. He had chosen to eat arsenic as a health tonic, much like these kind of medicines that we talked about. It would have given him gorgeous glossy hair, it would have made uh, his complexion flawless, would have bulked him up a little bit so he looked more masculine, I suppose. And so he took this regularly and... In their house, there were just bottles and bottles of arsenic just everywhere. But blame fell on Florence Maybrick, and she was put on trial, and she was found guilty, but she protested her innocence throughout. She served her whole term, I believe, and she was eventually released. She wasn't put to death, which actually would have been feasible. It would have been a perfectly reasonable decision to make at the time, but for some reason she was given a life sentence. Mm -hmm. And when she was released, she went back to America and lived a faultless life. Now, there are two theories. One, that Mr. Maybrick just died of natural causes. And or arsenic poisoning. Or arsenic poisoning. That Self-administered. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's lots and lots of circumstances around Florence Maybrick and who had access to the sick room and what arsenic purchases she'd made. It's a really interesting case of did she or didn't she. Mm-hmm. And I come down on the side of she didn't, but that's 
purely you know subjective but it's a fascinating case and mm-hmm. it it's fairly typical of the pattern of arsenic poisoning that someone gets sick it's blamed on gastroenteritis then someone gets suspicious and they find arsenic in the body etc mm-hmm. etc and this would be a good example as well of the compound that's you know somebody might die under suspicious or not under suspicious circumstances be buried mm. then somebody else dies so they dig the first person up yes. but of course there's arsenic just in the ground absolutely and these cases there have been many cases mm-hmm. of this because it is a common contaminant so now it would be standard practice that as well as examining the corpse you examine the surrounding soil mm-hmm. and you know even what the coffin's made of uh, for a brief period arsenic solutions were used as embalming fluid until someone realised, hang on a minute, that's just going to disguise any murder cases. So they put an end to that. So there's lots of other environmental factors to take into consideration. So even though arsenic is very easy to detect within a corpse, Mm -hmm. it's perhaps the easiest poison to detect, there are still question marks as, is it enough to kill? How did it get there? Was it from the environment? Who administered it? How? Etc, etc. So it's not as clear-cut as the forensic examination might initially appear. Let's finish off talking about how Agatha Christie used it. You've already mentioned that she didn't use arsenic that much. It's perhaps a bit obvious. No, I think it was, again, a bit like Carrari, it was cheating. So her best example of, of, I think, of arsenic use is in the story Murder is Easy. Now, actually, there's a whole host of murders in this. Mm -hmm. This is one of those almost stereotypical Agatha Christie villages with people just dropping dead everywhere. And one of the earliest cases is a lady who had gastroenteritis for a long time and her husband seemed very indifferent to her health and all of a sudden she started to get better and then had a sudden relapse and died. And this is, as we have said, pretty much the pattern Mm -hmm. of how a lot of arsenic cases went. So when Christie did go for an arsenic poisoning, she went for a fairly traditional setup up and it was the husband murdering the spouse which is unfortunately also quite typical of arsenic poisonings. Resonance relies on the support of its listeners. You can help us today by making a donation online at resonance.fm. And you can support us throughout our annual fundraiser, which runs from February the 13th to the 21st. Nine days of wondrous live events, our amazing online auction, and numberless special programmes. Resonance. It's your radio station. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. I'm talking to Catherine Harkup about her book A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie. And Catherine, to start off this next section, I want to look at a few poisons together that you cover in the book. And these are all Mm -hmm. plant-based. Belladonna, or Deadly Nightshade, Digitalis, which comes from foxgloves, Esserine, which is is an an exotic one, actually, because it comes from an African bean, Calabar bean. So these are all things that come from easy-to-find plants. And 
the reason I want to talk about them together is because often something I didn't realise is that like one of these could be used as the antidote for another one of them quite often. Absolutely. It's, I find that fascinating mm-hmm. that one poison can act as the antidote for another poison. There's lots of complementary ways in which they can be used. And it's simply because whatever the point of attack within the body, if you find something that has attacks the same point but has the opposite effect, you have a very effective antidote, but mm-hmm. you also have another poison. Um, so one example, we've talked about it already, is curare, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant antidote for strychnine poisoning. Fortunately, neither of those poisonings are very common today, uh, exceptionally rare, but uh, strychnine attacks the nerves and it activates nerves, so it switches them on. There's no kind of breaking system for the nerves. So you are thrown into horrible convulsions, so you need a muscle relaxant to prevent that poisoning. Fortunately, curare is just such a thing, and it attacks at the same point in the nervous system, but it switches off that go message. So it's the exact same point, but the opposite message. And so with careful balancing, you have effective antidotes for the two. So let's um, let's look at more closely at some of these. So atropine, which is the, the poisonous element of, of the deadly nightshade or, or mm-hmm. belladonna. So what's atropine? Atropine, it's the drug that's used still today. It's used preoperatively because it again it interacts with the nerves and it interacts with the part of the nervous system that controls fight or flight kind of activity or rest and digest so when you're resting your heartbeat slows and you have um, increased fluid so increased saliva and digestive juices to rest and digest so what atropine does is it switches off the rest and digest so you're put into fight or flight so you have dry mouth you Mm -hmm. have pounding heart uh, your pupils dilate so that you can get as much visual information and your body is primed and ready for whatever emergency it perceives around it so this drug has lots of medical uses like i say it can be used to dry up secretions before an operation because obviously if you're operating you're under anesthetic you can't clear your throat effectively so you dry up those secretions or it's used ophthalmically to investigate the eye because Mm -hmm. it dilates the pupil in that case it would be applied directly to the eye so it's only a local effect and you don't tend to get those side effects because you carefully dose it and it's locally administered so it just means that you have you can see into the eye into the mm-hmm. retina much much easier yeah, I've, so, I've had that done. have you had yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. how long did it last well it lasted a few hours and i remember it was it was a really sunny day Oh, as no. well so so yeah so I had some luckily I had sunglasses with me when I came out I think they probably told me to take them yeah yeah but it was really unpleasant like mm. being being outside on a really really sunny day when my, my pupils were like huge <laughs> absolutely yeah. just dazzled the whole time <laughs> Yeah, so it can do all of those things because it interacts with the nerves. It also has interesting side effects if you have more of it. So one of the most noted side effects is hallucinations, Mm -hmm. quite powerful visual hallucinations, which uh, has possibly caused its links to witchcraft and kind of spells and magic and potions back in history. So it's it's got a long and, and fascinating history, atropine, and it's in quite a few different plants that just grow natively in the UK that perhaps we don't realise. I mean, we've heard of deadly nightshade, mm-hmm. but actually there's a few others like mandrake and stuff that contain atropine. And, oh, I suppose it's a lesson to, you know, not just go foraging unless you know exactly what it is. And your... potatoes. Well, yeah, absolutely. But I think the, uh, is it solanaceine? That's in green potatoes. Mm-hmm. That's a, a different poison. So two for the price of one in potatoes. 
I want to talk about Isserine because mm-hmm. this is the one that comes from the, something called the Calabar bean, which yeah. comes from Africa, and it's the Calabar bean has a has a particularly interesting backstory. As it well. has a, fant- a fantastic history, which I only learnt about through doing this book, thanks to Agatha Christie for introducing me to this poison. So this Calabar bean, Calabar is a region of Nigeria, and it was this bean was discovered by Scottish missionaries who'd gone over there in the 1840s to convert the locals, I assume. And when they arrived, they discovered a local tradition of administering justice. So if someone was accused of a horrific crime like murder, rape, witchcraft, something really appalling, the simple way of determining whether they were guilty or innocent would be they were fed these beans. Mm -hmm. And they would apparently quite happily swallow these beans down and if the person died they were guilty and if they survived they were innocent and i can imagine these missionaries being equally horrified by this practice but also fascinated as to how this bean could first of all tell and also how it could have this kind of effect so various trials and tribulations trying to get hold of this bean because it was obviously tightly controlled by the people in power in mm-hmm. calabar but they managed to smuggle some out they sent it to this guy this toxicologist in Edinburgh and he had these beans and he decided in the true tradition of uh, toxicologists of the Victorian era to eat the bean and see what happened fortunately he only ate a quarter of the bean and apparently it didn't taste really of anything so he thought he'd been cheated or something and initially dismissed it but then he realised how very very wrong he was as his heart began to slow and he just felt generally awful he was probably half a bean away from a fatal dose but he was fascinated something that could counteract the apparent effects of atropine because his heart slowed and his pupils contracted so he started investigating this and it led to all sorts of interesting therapeutic uses so eserine today known as physostigmine which is even worse to pronounce than (laughs) eserine um, it probably has commercial names but it's still used to treat glaucoma so when your eyeball um, isn't draining the fluid properly so you get swelling and it's potentially very dangerous because you can almost crush the optic nerve and lose your sight so if you pull the iris contract it so that you have pinpoint pupils you actually allow the eyeball to drain some of the fluid so it's still in use and all because some um, crazy missionaries witnessed this weird trial by bean uh, in west africa you talk in the book about how possibly that trial might have worked yeah there are a few theories i don't know how accurate they are but they seem plausible to me so the first theory was if you were guilty you would obviously be very tense and cautious and worried so you're more likely to um, chew the beans take your time over it try and delay the effects and actually you're increasing your exposure Mm -hmm. to it because if you know if you're innocent you just go oh brilliant right swallow the beans Uh, this will prove my innocence and it'll be fine if you just swallow the beans actually the casing of the beans will contain most of the poison and it won't be released into your system so you're much more likely to survive so there is some kind of underlying very basic psychology as to how it might have worked but there's other thoughts that actually it was already a decision that had been made amongst the elite Mm -hmm. and they could somehow doctor the beans to moderate their toxicity or they could substitute similar looking beans that weren't as toxic so there's lots of theories as to how it would have worked in practice but these beans did not have some divine knowledge of uh, guilt or innocence Let's think of an example of one of these plant-based poisons being used by Agatha Christie. Um, I think, okay, I'm going to go for 
appointment with death because it goes against our cosy traditional idea Mm -hmm. of Agatha Christie. So first thought of Agatha Christie as a village green or a country house. This particular murder happens in Petra, the abandoned city in Jordan. And there's a party of a mix of English, Americans and a Frenchman, I believe, possibly, who go um, on an expedition to Petra to have a look at this wonderful city. And while they're there, this horrible, horrible woman gets murdered and everyone almost cheers that um, she's finally met her end. But uh, it appears initially that she had a known heart condition and it appears that the strain of the trip and the hot sun, that was it, she had a heart attack or she just keeled over. But due to various circumstances, which I'm not going to let on because you need to read the book, it becomes clear that she's been poisoned possibly with her own heart medicine which is digitalis and it can't be an accident she can't have like eaten some leaves or Mm -hmm. something because foxgloves where digitalis comes from just aren't going to grow in the middle of the desert so it has to be a deliberate case but of course poirot is on hand just coincidentally to uh, sort everything out it's a holiday just up the road absolutely (laughs) (laughs) i'm michael brooks You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about one other plant-based poison that I haven't included in that first bit. I want to talk about this one in slightly more detail. Hemlock, um, (laughs) which people will be familiar with if we talk about a real-life case. Um, Socrates is is the most famous person to have have been poisoned with... Deliberate poisoning that I know that's in, of. That's incredible. That's, I, that's such an amazing fact. I know, and I, I looked. I really did. There might be other cases out there, but I haven't found them. And I even appealed on Twitter, please, some, there must be a more recent hemlock deliberate poisoning than, was it 399 BC? It's a long time ago. But hemlock is still one of those poisons that you say the word hemlock and everyone goes, oh yeah, poison. Um, but I didn't know what it was really i mean i guess i did know that it was sort of plant-based but i think of it as being yeah some sort of weird ancient thing but it's like really it's really common as well it is is... really common and it looks like the sort of plants you will have seen growing in hedgerows and along riverbanks and i now when i go walking (laughs) i am looking to see if there's hemlock in amongst all of the other plants so it's part of the sort of carrot and parsley family so it's actually quite a familiar Mm -hmm. sight and if you had a picture of hemlock you go oh yeah i've seen that and it's really difficult to distinguish the poisonous hemlock the the stuff that killed socrates from the less nasty should we say still not good for you but less nasty varieties of this particular plant so again the moral of this story only eat the leaves if you recognize it from your dinner plate and even then you know check carefully yeah i was fascinated at how again readily available it is but actually i think it causes a lot of accidental poisoning because people do pick it and make mistakes Mm -hmm. but actually they're rarely fatal because again it's treatable but uh, in terms of deliberate poisoning I've just not found one which astonishes me maybe people have got away with it and it's described Plato described the the death of Socrates and it seems like you know quite a it's obviously you know it's sad and dramatic but it seems like quite a comfortable death it doesn't seem (laughs) particularly bad 
on the scale of poisonings, it does seem like one of the less awful ones. But it's still pretty awful. It's still pretty... It is a, a slow, creeping paralysis, and eventually you die because you suffocate, because you can't control the muscles for your breathing, which when it actually happens, must be extremely distressing. Because mm, you're conscious when that's Absolutely. Happening. This is the horrible thing about Hemlock. You are painfully awake and aware of what's happening to you and there's very little you can do about it. Well, you can shout, call to people who can come and assist you, but uh, your mobility will be restricted. Really quite unpleasant. But I do think that possibly Plato glossed over some of the details of this poisoning. It might not have been as pain-free as he makes out in his account and certainly the last few moments there might have been convulsions and suffocating is not a pleasant way to go so actually the final moments are not going to be good at all and again it's one of those poisons that takes hours i can't imagine the hours and hours of Mm. knowing what's coming up i think that's the appalling nature of it it's the foreknowledge of where this is going that would have been distressing for people like socrates before there were effective antidotes and again how is hemlock killing him what what does it do to the body again interacting with the nerves and stopping those uh, nerve signals so it is a slow creeping paralysis that um, takes over your body Uh, so this is an unusual one, I guess, for Agatha Christie to have chosen because she knew a lot about poisons, would have researched real-life incidences, presumably mm-hmm. also would not have been able to have, to have found any real-life incidences <laughs> after Socrates. But how did she make use of it? She uses it in one of her best-plotted books, Five Little Pigs. She only used it once. And it is a brilliant story. If there's any aspiring crime writers out there, if you want to know how to plot a crime novel, Five Little Pigs is a really good example to look at. So you have this rather scandalous figure of Amias Crail, who's cheating on his wife. He's this kind of lecherous, drunken artist. And one day he appears to be drunk, he's stumbling, he's slurring his words, and they see him sprawled out in front of his canvas and just assume that he's drunk. But of course, it's hemlock that's been administered to him somehow. But the wonderful thing is there's only five possible suspects, Mm. these five little pigs. And reading the book, you think, aha, well, I've got all my clues. It's all been explained to me. I should be able to work this out before Poirot. This one time, I will work it out before Poirot. And I defy you to do it, because it it is so brilliantly done. I'm not going to give it away, obviously, because that would spoil it. But it is... What's lovely about it is not only is it beautifully plotted in terms of who was around, who had access, etc., etc., the details of how the poison took effect on this guy's body reveal certain clues about the timing and who had opportunity to administer this poison. And the description of the poisoning is absolutely accurate. And it is, as so often with Christie, it is spot on. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking about A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie with Catherine Harkerhope. And Catherine, two cyanide, which I think is the definitely the most famous poison. It's the one yes. that everybody would have heard of. And it's definitely one where you see, you know, you'll see some film with some Nazi who's got it in a tooth and oh. he takes it and dies immediately at the feet of the people who want to interrogate him. And again, clearly that's not true. It's just about feasible with cyanide. It is the one exception. But how much would you have to take to do that? Surely not oh, as much that you could have with no, anything. Yeah. Oh, really? That okay? Yeah. Um, so it's about two or three hundred milligrams of cyanide, and if you think a sort of paracetamol tablet, that's mm-hmm. about two three hundred milligrams. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's feasible. And if you're lucky with cyanide, you'll be unconscious within seconds. Death might be a few minutes. If you're unlucky, you will stay awake through the horrible convulsions and the the slow, well, not slow, the all-body asphyxiation that occurs with cyanide. So not a good death, because even if it's only a couple of minutes, they're not going to be a fun few minutes. And what does, what does it do then? How can it kill you that quickly? It shuts down the process that allows you to combine glucose and oxygen to make energy. So if your cell doesn't have energy, it can't operate, so it dies. So you actually die of massive cell death because it's part of it's incorporated into part of the process of delivering oxygen to your cells. So it's a brilliantly efficient system within your body, so it's a brilliantly efficient way of killing you if you can disrupt that process. Is there an antidote? If you could somehow quickly in the few seconds are, that you've got find an antidote. There are many antidotes, actually. The critical factor is, as you say, is time mm-hmm. and it's getting it administered in time. So people who work with cyanide, and there are lots of legitimate industrial uses of cyanide. I've worked with cyanide compounds. And if you're working with a particularly nasty or a, a lot of it, uh, you will have a cyanide kit next to you and... You know, don't hang around thinking, oh, is that almonds? Just get on with the cyanide kit. And it just provides an alternative site for the cyanide to stick to so it doesn't disrupt process. I like that fact that you mentioned in the book about that, that, that we all think that cyanide smells or tastes of almonds, but that's yeah. actually not strictly true. No, almonds taste or smell of cyanide. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great way to describe it. So 
a real, like a really famous uh, real life case um, of cyanide. Possibly, probably, it's I, debatable. Mm, I doubt it, but anyway. <laughs> is Rasputin. Yes, the famous non-cyanide death. Though cyanide has appallingly probably killed more people than any other poison, and it is awful. So what case did I pick? <laughs> yeah, the one that probably didn't die of cyanide. The, the one guy that probably didn't die of cyanide. So Rasputin famously, the mad monk of Russia, had a few enemies, and some of those enemies invited him round for tea and cakes. If your enemy invites around for tea and cakes, I find something else to do. But he went and he was eating these cyanide-laced cakes and apparently with impunity. And he was just, you know, throwing more and more of these down his throat with no effects. So he was shot twice and he eventually drowned in a frozen river, according to the legend, Mm -hmm. which is probably made up. (laughs) Never mind. We're going to rush through a few poisons in in this last part of the show. Mainly I've left sort of chemically ones... And ones that are the worst ones, I think. <laughs> ones that have the most, the most horrific deaths, or in some ways, not necessarily even deaths, but side effects and things. And we won't cover them as thoroughly as we did before, because as I said, I want, I want to rush for a few. But I want to talk about phosphorus, oh, only in terms of, <laughs> let's talk about what might happen to you if you were working in a match factory, because oh, this is so okay. disgusting. So the match factories that were all over London in the mid-Victorian mm-hmm. era. You could buy matches for an appallingly low price and to make the sheer quantity of matches that people were consuming, not in an eating sense, obviously, uh, you had match factories and people would be standing over vats of compound, in big inverted commas, which was phosphorus dissolved in water and a few other chemicals. And they would dip the sticks in them and that formed the match head and they it would dry and people would work 10 hour shifts standing over this heated soup of chemicals breathing it all in and the phosphorus would accumulate in their jaw and it would start off with toothache and then their teeth would fall out and then they would have abscesses along the jaw that would ooze the most foul smelling pus Then you'd start to have abscesses open along the jawline and you could see the dead bone of the jaw through the face. The only cure for this, or the only treatment, wasn't a cure, the treatment was to have your jawbone removed and replaced with a fake jaw so that you could eat. He didn't do that. The phosphorus spread to internal organs and ultimately what kills you with phosphorus poisoning is liver failure. So there's not really much you can do other than get a new liver, which in Victorian era was absolutely not an option. So lots of women were horribly disfigured by this stuff, and many of them died. And you can understand why the match workers went on strike Mm -hmm. and started a long tradition of fairer working environment, safer Mm -hmm. working environments and sort of health and safety concerns in the workplace. So where does Christy use phosphorus as a poison? Uh, She uses it uh, once in a a lovely novel called Dumb Witness and goes through all of the sources of phosphorus if you're looking to go shopping for your poison of choice. Probably only works in 1950s Agatha Christie (laughs) world, but um, don't try it today. And this person, it is a brilliant setup. 
So there's this little old lady who's very wealthy with a very impoverished younger generation, as is a quite usual setup. And she takes part in a seance of all things. And during this seance, this cloud of sort of glowing gas comes out of her mouth, and everyone thinks, "Ooh, ectoplasm!" or "Oh, a premonition of death!" or something. Actually, it was the phosphorus that she'd been given, and phosphorus has this wonderful quality that it glows in the dark. Uh, which was its initial appeal. It's actually the phosphorus reacting with the oxygen in the air, which gives it its ability to make very good match heads because it reacts so violently with air. In small quantities, it does this glorious glow, but if you have a bit of friction, you get a, a flame. So Christie used it as a wonderful chemistry clue in Dumb Witness. You talk about nicotine in the book, and I saw that, and I thought, oh, nicotine, well, yeah, I've heard of that. That's quite innocuous, right, surely? <laughs> oh, no! Oh, oh, no. It's terrifying. Seriously. If anything's going to put you off smoking, it's... Um, nicotine is an appallingly effective poison mm -hmm. and about probably less than a gram will kill an adult in its pure form which obviously you are not getting if you are smoking a cigarette or an e-cigarette or using patches however however you can have too much of a good thing and um yeah people have attempted suicide with nicotine patches when i read it i had to read it two or three times really with nicotine patches but actually a lot of these people they needed uh, hospital treatment mm -hmm. it, it was really quite unpleasant they'd used quite a few of them but your skin actually acts as a reservoir for nicotine so even after you've peeled off all of these patches you can have a delayed effect so mm -hmm. really not a good an odd but not a good choice at all and again what is it doing to the body again it's your your nervous system so it's basically overloading your nerves and it depresses your nervous system and shuts it down so it's actually, again, like cyanide, a very rapid death mm -hmm. if you have enough of it. There's a story I read, I don't think I included it in the book, this guy, he'd made his own nicotine insect spray. It's a very good insect spray. Do not use it at home for the following reasons. He kept his homemade nicotine spray in a brandy bottle, of all things, and nicotine, in its purish state, looks an awful lot like whiskey mm -hmm. or brandy. So he went into his shed, probably thinking, I'll have crafty snifter, otherwise not looking, and he took a slug out of this brandy bottle, thinking it was brandy, realised his mistake straight away, and literally ran to his kitchen to drink some milk. I don't know why he went for milk, but maybe he wanted to you know, counteract the effects or something. And he was dead before he could raise the milk bottle to his lips. Now, for all of these poisons, as you're talking about them, you talk about the fatal dose, the mm. amount that you would need to take. And often that's, you know, a, a relatively small amount. Often that's a very small amount. But the next one I want to talk about, ricin, is a terrifyingly small amount. It, yeah, it's one that, if you want to weigh it out and scare yourself, it's... If you can get a tiny, tiny little grain of salt and maybe crush it up a little bit and get one of those littler grains of salt, that's about the lethal dose of ricin. It's one milligram, which injected into the bloodstream. That's fatal. And again, four days of utter misery. Uh, you're going to die of multiple organ failure. Really not nice, but ingested slightly more. But still, not good. Avoid. 
So what is ricin doing? Ricin is disrupting the ribosomes within your cells. So ribosomes are there to build proteins and enzymes and make more of you. So do all of the things that your body needs to do to work properly. So if you destroy enough ribosomes, you can't repair yourself, your cell can't function, the cell dies. And if enough cells die, you have organ failure. Is there a antidote? There is not. Just to reassure everyone, there is not. There is a preventative. So people who might be exposed to ricin. So there's very legitimate research into ricin because it has lots of interesting medical applications Mm -hmm. if you can get it right. So those sort of people, you can have injections of tiny, tiny amounts of ricin and you will build up a natural immunity to it. You'll build up antibodies. So soldiers who might be exposed to chemical warfare situations and various other workers, they can get these injections to protect themselves. So let's talk about some some real-life cases. So it's it's a relatively recent recently discovered poison right is that right it, as a poison it's been known about for a, a long time but in terms of murder uh-huh. the most with well, the first case that we know of is uh, 1978 which is appallingly recent and it is very famous case particularly in london Mm -hmm. it's the georgie markov murder the umbrella case on waterloo bridge so agatha christie was writing about ricin 50 years before anyone had been deliberately murdered with it and so she had no case studies to Mm -hmm. draw on and it's one of her few stories where she does get a few details wrong I mean, it's not completely unrealistic. It's not... The method of administration and the time of death is not feasible. However, there are lots of other details that she does get right, and which is terrifying, given she had nothing really to go on. Mm-hmm. So, um, so where does she use it? She uses it in a short story called The House of Lurking Death, yeah. which is a brilliant title, and it's one of the Partners in Crime short stories. I'm Natalie Haynes, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned, right back in the first part of the show, strychnine, mm. and sort of briefly alluded to what it does. And I want to talk about that in a bit more detail, because I think of all of these... I mean, I think ricin was the one that, that scared me the most in terms of what it does, but strychnine is definitely the worst death, I think, of any of these. Strychnine is, is horrific. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, I've, I've seen depictions of it on TV and it's just laughable because it's nowhere near as awful as it really is. It affects your nerves and it causes your muscles to tense, which doesn't sound so bad, except that it causes all of the muscles in your body to tense and to an agonising degree. So the muscles in your back are stronger generally than the muscles in your front. So victims will arch themselves up like a bow or a letter C with only their heels and the back of their head resting on the ground. And there is there's a picture of what this looks like if you're at all interested and you want to give yourself nightmares. It's actually a guy who's dying of tetanus. And the symptoms of tetanus and strychnine are so very similar that they're often mistaken. So there was a a picture drawn by a an army surgeon. He was treating someone with tetanus and he did this painting and it, it's no two ways about it. It's horrific because strychnine doesn't even have the decency of knocking you out. Mm-hmm. You are horribly aware of what is going on. And you have these bouts of convulsions and then periods of rest. And what eventually kills you is exhaustion of your muscles 
or you suffocate because you can't control your breathing because your the muscles for breathing are paralysed. And, and that that awareness is part of yeah, what it's doing to you, right? I think. Yeah, oh yes, you yeah. you will have heightened senses, yeah. so you will be very very painfully aware of what is going on. It is the most appalling thing, and the really what I hate about strychnine is there are some very famous strychnine poisoning cases where it's been medical people who've used it, and they would have known what it was going to do to someone, and that's that's an extra little twist of the the night, the extra nastiness that goes into these stories. Yeah, the knowledge and the awareness, I think, is. The really chilling aspect. So where does Christy use it? Christy uses it, a best example, her first novel. So she uses strychnine in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, mm-hmm. which is the stereotype of Christy. You have the big country house, the wealthy older relative, the poor younger generation, and no one's surprised when Mrs Inglethorpe dies. It's just who and how. Mm-hmm. And to me, the how is the most interesting because she used a, a spectacular combination of chemicals in that particular novel. It's not just one poison, there are three for one victim. It's a, a real chemistry lesson if you're looking for a good science explanation in Christie. Just one more poison then, thallium. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, and you can tell us what thallium is and what it does briefly, but I want to use thallium to get us on to the, the subject of, of who I mentioned in the first part, Graham Young and, the, mm-hmm. and his career as a poisoner. So what is thallium? Thallium is an element in the periodic table. It is most commonly used as a salt. Uh, It has various technical applications today. It's used in lenses and electronics. Mm -hmm. Nothing particularly every day. However, back in Agatha Christie's day, thallium salts were used as a depilatory, uh, like a cream, it caused the hair to fall out, which had some cosmetic applications, but it also was used to expose regions of the skin that were infected with ringworm, Mm -hmm. and then you would treat the ringworm once the hair had fallen out so yeah it's not available for that application today thank god so tell us who graham young was he's the he's the real life example that you use in this book graham young was a very strange individual he was one of those people that i read about in my books they always comment on his fascination with poisons and his astonishing collection of toxicology books and poison books and all sorts of books and i look over at my bookshelf and i think okay <laughs> so i'm waiting for the knock at the door so he was obsessed since he was a kid with poisons and he decided to start poisoning his family I think more because he had access to them than because he particularly wished them harm. Mm-hmm. It was almost a detached kind of, almost a, an experiment. Yeah, he was experimenting on them, Absolutely. clearly. Yeah. And he, so he was found out for attempting to poison his family and he was sent to Broadmoor. Even at Broadmoor, it's possible that he carried on poisoning people. Uh, eventually he persuaded the doctors that he was cured and he was released and he got a job and then he started poisoning his work colleagues and he chose thallium that's what makes him so interesting apart from the callous detached nature of what he did it's such an unusual poison to Mm -hmm. use for murder because no one had really heard of it except that he would appear to have known more about thallium and its effects on the body than the police and medical experts at the time it was quite astonishing the information that he'd 
collected. And he, as he poisoned his colleagues, he kept a diary of the effects. And oh, yeah, nasty individual. What's astonishing about that case is, I mean, first of all, he got that job without his employers knowing that basically he'd been in Broadmoor for poisoning. No, and I, I have some sympathy with that because if you have spent time in hospital or in prison if you are said to be cured and you or you have served your time what business is it of your employers if you are so i i don't have particular problems with that it is unfortunate with hindsight that they didn't tell him about his um, poisoning tendencies when they put him in charge of the tea round mm-hmm. <laughs> that might have been something that someone thought maybe they should mention but if he was supposedly cured then why would you do that no but even then i mean once the poisoning because again this is the thing where he was methodically poisoning people over mm. a period of time people were getting ill Mm-hmm. And not only were people getting ill, but Graham was chipping in with his knowledge of poisons about yeah. what might have happened to them. And it takes a while before anybody actually suspects that it might be him doing it. Absolutely. This is almost his ego that no one's figured out how clever he is. So he has to tell people how clever he's been. And of course, when he starts to mouth off about his knowledge of poisons and uh, the symptoms that his colleagues are displaying, he gets found out very quickly. But it did take him to speak up, to really discover him. So, yeah, his ego was his own downfall, really. And what happened to him? Oh, he... Uh, he was put on trial again and he he was found guilty which he evidently was and but he requested he didn't want to go back to Broadmoor so he went into the regular prison service and um, he stayed in a prison until his death I think he was in his 40s apparently he had a heart attack I heard no more poisoning cases since then. Maybe they, they watched the tea more carefully wherever he ended up. And then finally, where can we read about Thallium in Christie? Oh, again, a brilliant novel, The Pale Horse. So The Pale Horse was actually cited at Graham Young's trial because it was published, I think, a year or two before he started his poisoning cases. And it's the sort of book that he would have been fascinated by, although he denied ever reading it. And all sorts of campaigns were got up against Christie saying that she was giving poisoners ideas and things like this. But actually, when it came to looking for thallium symptoms and identifying thallium poisoning, hers was the best non-technical book you Mm. could read because it was so accurate and so she has been read by forensic scientists doctors to recognize symptoms and treat people uh, very effectively to save them so it's a double-edged sword you know there's is it too much information or if it's not enough information can it be not be useful to other people so it's a difficult thing to balance but christy has saved lives as well as perhaps giving ideas to poisoners. Although we should say that Christie, the murderer always gets discovered. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's sort of the point. It's not surefire way to get away with it. They always get found out. Just one more question then before we finish. So having written this book, having looked you know, in detail at, at 14 poisons and their uses both in fiction and in reality, do you have a favourite? Which one would you recommend to a, to a potential poisoner? Recommend to a potential poisoner? Oh, um, maybe when we're not recording. Maybe, you know, cash only. <laughs> Questions <laughs> afterwards. Um, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> 
Um, the only recommendation I can make is that if you are thinking of poisoning someone, you've got to make it look like natural causes. Because even though I get asked many, many times, is there such a thing as an undetectable poison? Which is quite worrying from an audience member. Uh, I have to say there isn't. And toxicologists are a very determined and dedicated bunch. So if there's an autopsy, they're probably going to find or suspect poison so you have to have covered your tracks very well much better to try and avoid the autopsy in the first yeah. place and suggest cremation is always yeah seems or to be just a good don't one. kill people that's always a good option <laughs> that's a good point for us to end <laughs> so i've been talking to Catherine harcup we've been talking about a is for arsenic the poisons of agatha christie which is out now from bloomsbury Catherine, thank you very much for, for thank coming you in. Tell it's me been about lovely it. you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture This episode of Little Adams was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.